What a great song. I, think, I have a lot of favorite songs, but that's in the, on the list. Um, what a privilege to partner together with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity we have to represent you as we minister in Poland. And what a privilege to be together this morning, to sing together, to open God's word and go through Mark chapter 8. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles. We won't come anywhere close to going through every verse of the chapter, but we'll try to work through much of the chapter. Uh, for years, I've thought that this chapter has one of the strangest miracles in the Bible. I've been puzzled by the way that Jesus heals this blind man. Um, let me start by reading verses 23, 22 and following. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see. I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What in the world is going on? Jesus miraculously opens his eyes the first time. He can see. That's different than being blind. Something happened, but he doesn't see very well. He looks out, and he sees people, and they look like trees walking, kind of big blobs. He's no longer blind, but he doesn't see the details very well. And then Jesus heals him a second time, and he sees clearly. Jesus is God. He's all-powerful. He didn't mess up the first time. It's not as if this was a really difficult miracle, and so he had to do it in two stages, like he didn't have enough power to just heal the man in the first step. No, no. This miracle is done by Jesus in this way for some reason, to show something, to teach something, but it's done this way on purpose. And this miracle is placed by Mark in this chapter for a reason, to help us maybe understand something about the other stories in the chapter. I think the whole chapter is about eyesight. There are few people in the chapter that don't see things clearly. Maybe it's fair to say that the whole chapter is about us getting the right perspective. I like to watch mixed martial arts, the UFC. These guys are not only strong, but they're extremely talented, and they have an amazing determination. I watched a fight the other night where a Polish fighter seriously damages his foot in the first round. I don't know if it's broken or what the problem is, but it's swollen to about twice the size that it should be. He fights two more rounds, and he wins the fight. I sometimes would like to imagine that I could stand in the octagon and hold my own with some of these guys for a few minutes. Realistically, if I was in there with someone who weighed 50 or 60 pounds less than me, I'd like to think that I could last a couple minutes. But if I were put in the octagon with the heavyweight champion, I would lose. And honestly, it would take him one punch or one kick. Remember the story of David and Goliath? 
the men of Israel look at Goliath and they recognize the reality that they couldn't beat him. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's a more talented fighter than any of them. If any one man from Israel steps out there to battle Goliath one-on-one, he would lose. A few thousand men all have the same perspective. And then David shows up and he has a different perspective. He sees Goliath. He hears that Goliath is mocking God and God's people. And David sees Goliath as small and weak when compared to God a God who is jealous for his own name and for his own glory. And although we know that David isn't a big man, the armor of Saul was much too large for him, David knows that God can use even a small man to defeat Goliath. David had eyes to see what none of the other men that day could see. David had a perspective that no one else had. He was the only one looking at the situation correctly. As David's eyes were opened to see what many others didn't see, may God open our eyes. May we look out into the world that we live in with a correct perspective. Let's go through four situations in the chapter. Uh, I propose that these are four eyesight problems. Let's start with the first story in the chapter. Jesus and his disciples are in a desolate place. There's no grocery store. There's no provisions. There are a few thousand people who've been following Jesus for a couple days, and they need to be fed. There's no obvious solution to the question of how to feed these people. And yet we read that Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. The disciples look at each other, and they have no idea how they're supposed to respond. We read their answer in verse 4. How? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? All they can see are their own limitations. All they can see is their own inability to solve this problem. Is it a good thing for man, for woman, for us to see our own limitations, to look and see our own inabilities? Yeah, it's good for us to see our limitations. When a young man is about to propose to his girlfriend, it's best that he realize how great is the responsibility of leading a wife and leading a family. It's best that he go into this new situation fully aware that in his own strength, he's incapable of being the husband and the father to his future wife and his future children. It's better that he feel this great weight on him than that he feel, ah, this is no big deal. I'm a determined young man. If I try hard, I can do this. It's good for a child to feel his limitations, 
that he's incapable of being a perfectly obedient child to his or her parents? Should a wife or a mother feel, I can do this. If I work harder, I can not lose my temper, not lose my cool on my husband or my children for the next 30 years. I've got this. I'll grit my teeth and try harder. I can do it. It's right and good for us to see our limitations. There's no perfect husband. There's no perfect wife. There's no perfect child. In our strength, we'll all fall short of the mark. There's none of us that have good enough words and good enough arguments to convince our friends and coworkers to come to Christ. There's no pastor talented enough that on his ability, he'll feed his congregation. Many times over the years of church planning in Poland, Sarah and I were in such a situation that we saw no clear solution. The voices in your head start saying, you're not qualified for this. You're not the man for this job. You're in way over your head. Should we feel that? That we're incapable? Just like the disciples here who look out at 4,000 people and feel their inability to feed these 4,000 people. Yes, we should feel our inability. But at the same time, we should feel a second thing. I'm incapable And number two, I'm not alone. I'm incapable and I'm not alone. In the passage we read, Jesus was standing right there. He can do miracles. He can do the impossible. And he's looking at his disciples and he's using his words to say that he loves these 4,000 people and he wants to help them. And in the presence of Jesus the disciples can only focus on themselves, on their abilities or their lack of abilities. Child of God, God is just as close to you right now as Jesus was to those disciples. He loves you and he's ready to help. Child, you're unable to obey your parents, but God is ready and willing to help you. Turn your eyes off of yourself and put them on him and ask him for help. Husband, you're unable to be all that you should be for your dear wife and children, but God is near. He's all powerful. Turn your eyes off of yourself and look on him. Wife, you have limitations. You can't be the perfect wife. You can't be the perfect mother, but we can't let our inabilities paralyze us. Look to Jesus and trust that he will empower you to do the impossible. Christian, you don't have the words to cause people to come to Christ, but trust that God can give you good words to say. We must not focus on our inabilities. We can see them, but let's focus on Jesus. The first eyesight problem is this focus on self and our limitations, and our inabilities, and our weaknesses. We are weak, but that's exactly the sort of people that God chooses to use. A few verses later, Jesus confronts a second problem. He's not pleased with those who are looking for signs and wonders. This is also a sort of eyesight problem. 
I'll read from verse 11. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. God, in his great love toward mankind, has generously revealed himself to us through nature, through the Holy Scriptures, and through Jesus Christ. Our correct response to the three ways that God has revealed himself to us is to take advantage of the revelation that he's given us. Use it. Study it. Get to know the God of the universe. God wants you to know him, and he's chosen the way in which he's revealed himself to us. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Gideon. You remember it. God gives some commands, and instead of Gideon directly obeying those commands, he asks God to do some miracles. And God is extremely long-suffering and generous to Gideon, granting him some signs. And we need to recognize that Gideon's behavior, asking for some signs and wonders, is not an example of faith, but an example of lack of faith. In Mark 8, when people ask for signs, Jesus is not pleased. God has chosen to reveal to us many things. And he's chosen to not reveal to us many things. And he's said, this is enough. This is sufficient. We read these words. They're so important. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then this that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There are lots of things that we'd like to know that we won't find in the Bible. God has said, this is sufficient for my children to be complete, mature, equipped for every good work. Husband, imagine this. Uh, your wife has prepared dinner for you. You come home from work, it's all on the table. Meat, potatoes, salads, desserts, drinks. And you come into the kitchen and start rummaging through the cabinets and pantry until you find a bag of gummy bears and you sit down and begin to eat them. Your wife is not going to be pleased with that behavior. Similarly, God has prepared a way for men to know him. He desires that we know him. He's generously revealed himself to us. The primary way that God has revealed himself to mankind is through his written word. Let us open our eyes and see this amazing gift. Instead of having wandering eyes, looking around for signs, to lead us through this life. Let's open the, open the word. Get our eyes focused down on the page. 
Let's move on to the next situation, starting in verse 14. Now, they'd forgotten to bring bread. You have to know that, or the whole rest of the story doesn't make sense. Now, they've forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? So the disciples have made a mistake. They forgot to bring bread on their journey. And on their journey, Jesus begins to teach them. And he uses the phrase, leaven of the Pharisees. I think he wants to draw their attention to something like hypocrisy or legalism. He's saying something like, watch out for legalism. Trying to earn God's favor through our efforts is extremely dangerous. And he uses the illustration of leaven. Leaven spreads through the dough and grows. Jesus is illustrating that legalism and hypocrisy also have a tendency to spread and to grow. To which the disciples respond, oh, we know what he's talking about. He's pointing out that we messed up, that we didn't bring bread. To which Jesus responds, what are you talking about? Are you blind? Let's try to work through what's going on. Jesus is trying to teach them, and he's certainly not worried about the fact that they didn't bring bread. He is completely capable of feeding their little band with the one loaf that they have brought. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about something else. The disciples are so focused on the bread situation that they're reading all kinds of strange interpretations into Jesus' teaching. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they say, we're getting your point. We messed up. No. The disciples have made a mistake. They should have brought bread. I travel often. I'm on the road most every weekend. I'm not in the habit of packing meals for myself. We live in such a convenient world. I'm counting on the fact that I'll be able to take almost any exit on the highway and find a place to buy a sandwich. Even in a small town with no restaurant, I'll be able to find a gas station with a convenience store and a few shelves of food. But the disciples lived in a different world. It was much more difficult for them to find a store or restaurant. In those times, it was a wise practice to pack some food and some water on every single journey. So the disciples have made a mistake. They're in some sort of trouble of their own making. Now we need to notice the difference between the problem they had in the first couple verses of the chapter when they were trying to feed the 4,000 people and the problem they had now. In the first problem, no human has the ability to do that. 
In that situation at the beginning of the chapter, they're in a sort of problem that's no fault of their own. The trouble they're in now is a little bit different. It's trouble of their own making. And these are the two basic sorts of trouble that we all experience in life. Trouble just because we're fallen human beings living in a certain sin-cursed world, and secondly, trouble that we partially caused ourselves or fully caused ourselves. Two types of trouble. Jesus offers the same solution to both. The solution is this. Stop focusing on yourself and turn your eyes to Jesus. When in trouble, not of your own doing, trust in Jesus. When in trouble of your own doing, confess your fault and trust in Jesus. Let's look at Jesus' words from verse 18 and following. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces, pieces did you take up? And they said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? What are they to understand? That they can trust Jesus to meet their needs. That they should run to Jesus with their troubles. That they should not focus on themselves. They should not focus on the troubling situation that they've got themselves into. At the end of verse 18 and the beginning of 19, we read, he says, And do you remember when I broke the five loaves? Often in Jesus' teaching, he teaches about himself. He draws attention to his work. No other prophet in the Bible is like that. They all say, look to your father. He's given the promises. Look to the future Messiah. Jesus says, notice what I did here. Remember what I did and what I can do. I've been a pastor now for a little over 20 years. And through years of counseling, I've experienced people who are willing to run to Jesus for that first sort of problem, but feel that they can't run to Jesus for the second sort of problem. Yes, I know Jesus will help us through our troubles, but this trouble I'm in today is trouble that I've caused myself from my own foolishness or from my own sin. Listen to this carefully. It's possible to focus too greatly on our own sin. It's possible to focus too greatly on our own sin. That's probably not the greatest problem in our modern world. There are many people around us who flaunt their sins, who claim to be proud of their sins, who claim that they feel no remorse for their sins. It's a good and healthy thing for us to see our sin for what it is. Filthy, repulsive rebellion against a good and loving God. However, there is a way to wrongly focus on sin so that it keeps us from God. Imagine a person who is aware that they sinned greatly Friday night or Saturday night 
And so they decide to not come to church to worship God on Sunday. Suppose a, a person isn't able to sing praise from their heart because they're aware of their sin this week. A person who avoids their Christian friends because they're aware of their sins. A person who doesn't take part in the Lord's Supper because they know that they failed again this week. Our sins should not keep us from Jesus. Let me read a short story from Luke 7 that you all know. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say on, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus loved this sinful woman and he rejoiced that she drew near to him. When everyone else thought the right thing to do would be for her to stay away, Jesus taught that the right thing for sinful people to do is to go to Jesus Brother and sister, God is ready to forgive your sins. God is ready to work not only in your life, but he's willing to use you as part of the body of Christ to build his kingdom. All of the servants of God who he's ever used to build his kingdom have been sinners. It's good for us to see our sin but it's not good for us to focus on our sin. See your sin for what it is, but let's keep our focus on Jesus. Someone once said, look to Jesus 10 times for every one time you look to your sin. Jesus rebuked the disciples in this story because they were so focused on their own failure that they couldn't see straight. They focused on their mistake so greatly that Jesus asked them the question, 
Are you blind? The next eyesight-related story in the chapter is a positive one. Peter sees clearly. God opens his eyes, and he sees Jesus for who Jesus really is. Let's read from verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. God has done that. God has opened Peter's eyes. Peter sees Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one promised to Adam and Eve, the one who would one day be born that would crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. They lived in a sort of garden temple where they enjoyed God's presence. However, they rebelled against God, chose to go their own way, and the God of the universe, who is a just God, cast them out of the garden, away from his presence, and at that same moment, he gave a promise that one day, a descendant of Eve would be born who would conquer the serpent. One day, a hero would be born who would bring mankind back to God, back to the garden, back to paradise, to have fellowship with the Father. All of the prophets looked forward to this anointed one of God. And Peter's eyes are opened, and he sees Jesus of Nazareth for who he is, the promised one. And let's think about it for a minute. Does Peter see clearly? Let's keep reading the next verse, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't it shocking that verse 32 is in the Bible? Peter takes Jesus aside. He says, uh, come here for a second. In general, you're doing pretty good. Bringing us back to God, ushering in the kingdom, but you're messing up some of the details. God would not have his beloved suffer. Who could be so blind that he would correct the Messiah? This is Peter, the same guy who had just seen so clearly. The mistake that Peter makes here comes natural to all of us. How could a good God who loves his son more than anything, literally, Jesus is the beloved son of God in whom the father is well pleased. No one is, is his equal. None is more beloved than him. How could it be God's plan 
for his son to suffer horribly, be rejected and die. This is difficult for us to understand, but it's true. Jesus suffered and died according to the will of God. Peter says, no, that can't be right. God is a God of love. It's not his plan for his beloved to suffer. Peter tries to explain to Jesus how God's will works. He explains to Jesus that God's will is for his beloved to not suffer. Peter is wrong. But let's not be too hard on Peter. This is extremely difficult. Our minds are limited. Our perspective is limited. Maybe when we're in theology class and we're thinking about these things, there are moments when it's quite easy to say, ah, yes, God uses suffering in his children's lives for their good and for his glory. However, when we ourselves or those very close to us go through dark valleys of suffering, many of us are tempted to make the same mistake that Peter made. We're tempted to start doing theological gymnastics to show that suffering must somehow not be part of the will of God. Let's take a minute and remember the beloved hanging on the cross. Look at the nails. Look at the crown of thorns. Look at the hole in his side. This is both the worst moment in the history of the world and the best moment in the history of the world. The only perfect man, the only man who didn't deserve any suffering is suffering. And this suffering will not be wasted. It's not senseless suffering. Oh, that's good news. Just as Jesus suffered according to the will of God, a suffering that God used for much good, suffering that brought many sinners to himself and was used to glorify the holy name of God. Dear brother and sister, if you're suffering today, know this, God will not waste the suffering of his beloved children. Your suffering is not senseless. It's part of his plan. We don't understand all the details of his plan. We don't understand exactly how suffering will be used. But let us not be as blind as Peter. Let us open our eyes to the truth that God will bring all of his children through suffering to glory. Not directly to glory, but through suffering to glory. Listen to this verse from Philippians chapter one. It's verse 29. For it has been granted to you, it's been given to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The verse says this, Christian, you've been given a gift. Not one gift, but two. Belief and suffering. The blind man's eyes were opened, but only so that he could see people like trees walking. Isn't Peter just like that? 
He saw that Jesus would be victorious, that Jesus would bring us into the kingdom, but he was blind to see that the road to victory leads through suffering, rejection, and even death. Peter thought that God's plan would be a straight line to victory with no curves and no valleys in the road. In some sense, Peter is still blind. God's plan for Jesus' victory sounded like foolishness to Peter. Let us not make the same mistake. Christian, God's plan for you probably has more curves and valleys in it than you would like. Both Jesus' suffering and death was not the end to his story. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. And on the last day, Jesus will sit high on his throne and judge all men. And for all of eternity, he will live and rejoice with his people who he purchased with his blood. And your story is similar. It's not a straight line to eternal rest. But if you're a child of God, it does lead to eternal rest. So through the valleys, through the rejection, through the suffering, and through death, let us look through eyes that see clearly. Let us look to the glory that awaits us. And remember the words that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let us trust our Father, just as he used suffering in the life of his beloved Son, so he will not waste one ounce of our suffering. It will all serve his purposes. In this world, we will have trouble, some of it of our own doing. But let us confess our faults and run to Jesus. He alone can save us. Since we can't fix ourselves, let us run to the one who can make us whole. His methods of bringing us home are probably not the ones that we would choose, but he's worthy of our trust. May our eyes be ever focused on him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you that you are a God who opens eyes, uh, sometimes opens them partially, and sometimes opens them even more clearly. We pray, God, that you will open our eyes to see our situations as we should, to see our sins as we should, and God, most importantly, help us to open our eyes, open our eyes clearly so we see you as we should that we see you in such a way that we're drawn to you, that we run to you, that we trust in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.